Genesis chapter 2, if you'll turn there. We're going to be in a couple, three different places. Let me just read Genesis 2, 18 through 24. Genesis 2, 18 through 24. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. New King James says, comparable to him or for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was, found, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. First wedding. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall shall become one flesh. One flesh. You can't really understand the storyline of the Bible and the gospel unless you understand something about marriage. It goes without saying, but I'm going to say it. Marriage is very important to God. In fact, so much so that you could say that the Bible storyline is really about one big wedding theme. The Bible begins with marriage. Uh, Genesis 2, as we're reading, the first wedding between the first couple, and that is associated with creation. So here's the thing that God wants us to get, that when he creates someone and they get married together, then it is identified with his creation. But that's not the only one. It's not just something that is true about the beginning of the Bible. It's also true at the middle, in the middle of the Bible. When Jesus comes in John chapter 2, it records the first miracle of Jesus. In fact, John writes, it's the beginning of signs. The very first thing that Jesus does when he brings about the new creation, was to make new wine at a wedding. If you're in John's gospel with me, if you'll turn there for a moment, if you're not there as you're following me, I want to show you how marriage and creation go together. And in this case, by the time we get to John 2, the beginning of new creation. Jesus is bringing a new creation, and John subtly tells us that by the way that he structures the first chapter or two, and truthfully, more than that if you read it carefully. But he uses Genesis language in John 1, verses 1 through 5, in the beginning was the Word, and so forth. He talks about light coming and darkness like it was in the beginning of creation. And then he tells about Jesus and who he is and how he's the light that's come into the world. And then he starts recording time. And in verse Number 19, it says, now this is the testimony of John. Now, he doesn't tell you that in the new creation, as he writes, this is the first day of that. But he tells you that looking backwards because the Bible says in verse number 
29, he says, if I have this right, yeah, 29, the next day. So he wants you to count the first conversation up until then as the first day. And then in verse 29, he has this thing with John the baptizer, behold the Lamb of God. That's day number two. And then it goes down there to the next text, verse 35. Again, and we don't know why, it seems random, but there is nothing random in the Bible. And it says, and the next day. And so there's day number three. And then if you keep turning to the next page, if you would, a little bit further back, and it says in verse number 43, the following day. Now, we don't understand the chronology or why. If you just read it as it is, you think, well, that doesn't make, well, I don't care. How, the next day, why do we care? Well, that's the fourth day. But then it starts to make sense because you get to the beginning of chapter 2 and Jesus is going to do a wedding. And weddings are associated with creation, in this case, new creation. And the wedding story begins with this phrase, and on the third day. So one, two, three, four, plus three is seven. It's John's version of a creation week. And he wants to know, like it was in the beginning, that after the creation week was done, a wedding took place. And that's also true when Jesus comes and the new creation begins. And there is a wedding here. And it is Jesus' first miraculous sign because here's what the Bible theme is all about. Here's one way of looking how all the parts and pieces fit together. It's all about a wedding. It's all about a marriage. That was true in Genesis it's true in John 2, but you got to know that it also ends that way. And if you turn to Revelation chapter 21, you know how this theme ends, don't you? It's the marriage of the Lamb. And you read Revelation 19 and a good part of Revelation 21, and it talks about the new Jerusalem coming down, and the city, which is God's people, is adorned like a bride for her husband. And that is mentioned multiple times. And it's also said that there'll be a wedding feast and the lamb and, and the, it's going to be, have a bride and God's people are that bride. And so from the be very beginning in the middle to the end, you could say the big theme overarching story of the Bible is one way to look at it. It's about a wedding. And I would tell you that you need to understand that, that that is really crucial for your marriage because here's what God wants you to see. He wants you tonight, if you're a husband and wife, he wants you to put your little marriage in his big story of his big marriage. Because it's in the big story of the big marriage theme that you get your cues about how to do your little marriage. So see, if there is a big marriage theme all the way through the Bible and you take your little marriage and you put it into that, you know what conclusion you have to come to is that your marriage really is not mainly about you. That is a principle that every marriage, right? Every marriage could use another dose of that, right? That your marriage is really not ultimately and even primarily about you. Your marriage to your wife is important, but the marriage that God has in mind is most important. And if you could, in your marriage, together, understand a husband and wife, that you are living together as husband and wife for a bigger purpose than what you can get out of it. 
It would change the dynamic of how you see your spouse, what your marriage is for, what the main purpose of it is, how you would live it out, and all the goals that you have would ultimately change, just like in anything else in life, when you involve yourself in something bigger than you are. But unfortunately, too many marriages think that the only marriage that matters is their own, and they live like it, and they reflect that in the way that they treat each other. We always we see the micro-marriage, but we don't see the macro-marriage, and nor do we try to live it out. It's the power of story, and I try to, as your pastor, over time, to keep drilling that into your mind, that you live in a bigger story. It's not just what you do and how you live your life every day. It's how you fit into the big story of God, and our children need that. Our children need to grow up knowing that they make decisions not based on what isolated is best for them, but they're living in a different story than everybody else practically in this world. They're living in a story bigger than them, a story that goes back thousands of years, and you happen to be a part of it. Again, my favorite, if you look at the Lord of the Rings, the main characters, believe it or not, with all the great big names and powerful people, are the hobbits, and they're called halflings. They live in a part of the world, Middle Earth, that nobody hardly knows anything about it. In fact, everybody wonders where they're from, and when they ask them, you're from the Shire, everybody doesn't know where that is. And they're very little. In fact, they get the job to do certain things because they're so small. They're almost like children. Gandalf says this about them. Hobbits are amazing creatures. You can learn all there is to know about them and their ways in a month, and yet after 100 years, they can still surprise you. In other words, you think you know everything about them, and there's not much important, and they're very little and insignificant, but you know the one who saves their world is a hobbit, and it's his name, and at his presence that everyone bows down to in the end. You see, that's us. We are halflings in God's marriage story. We're little and insignificant, and you think your little marriage doesn't really have a lot of profound impact. You'd be wrong, because God has chosen to shape the world and to tell his huge story, his macro marriage story, through people that he has chosen to live their lives together as husband and a wife that reflect that story in the way that they live. My aim tonight, and only have one, is to elevate your view of marriage. Your marriage, not only marriage is important to God, but your marriage is important to God. And may I go a little step further? Your oneness Your unity is important to God because it has been designed to display the oneness and the unity of the big marriage that he has talked about. In Genesis 2.24, we've read it already, one flesh, that was part of Adam and Eve's, can I say, wedding vows. And the phrase, one flesh, if you search throughout the Bible, you'll find that it's only used four other times. Believe it or not, only once. In the Old Testament, only that one time in Genesis 2.24. The other times are in the New Testament, two in the Gospels by Jesus in Matthew 19.5 and 6, and they relate to Mark 10.8 as well. And that's an argument for, for divorce, against divorce. And so it says, a man and a woman shall be one flesh. They've been united by God, and Jesus even adds the phrase, and what God has put together, let no one take asunder. So Jesus argues and uses Genesis 2.24, to argue against divorce in a frivolous and casual view of it. It's also used, not only those two places in the Gospels, but two places by the Apostle Paul. He quotes it first in 1 Corinthians 6.16, where he says, do you know if you 
If you are with a harlot or a, a prostitute, he goes, that you become one flesh with her. You're supposed to be one flesh with your spouse. But when you commit fornication, that's what you're doing. So it's an argument against sexual sin inside or outside of your marriage. Ephesians 5, 31 is the last one, the fourth one by Paul. And this one's different than all the others. I think you understand tonight without me explaining a lot that sexual impurity is wrong, that divorce is not God's design and most of the time is sinful. But there's a part tonight that we haven't put our mind to and our hearts to, and I want to put my time into that tonight. If you'll turn to Ephesians now with me, I appreciate it. You know this text, but you may not know it, how Paul intended to be used, and I want to help you see that tonight. Ephesians 5, in verse 31, is our quotation. And this is in a passage about how husbands and wives relate to one another, and everything seems normal as it goes until we get to the end. And you know this verse, but you may not know it. And it says in verse 31, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become, our phrase, one flesh. And then he says this, And this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Now, stay with me. Mystery, that word is used seven times in Ephesians, and they're worth your study. Chapter 1, verse 9, our text, obviously, it ends the book with 619, but there are four uses of it in the middle, and I want to show them to you because it's going to teach us how the micro-marriage and the macro-marriage go together. Chapter 3 of Ephesians, look at that with me if you would. And each one of these verses have mystery and explain it to us. And I quizzed my wife over this before we came. And I asked her, what does mystery in the Bible mean? And if you went to Bible college, maybe you know, but it's not a mystery like, um, what's her name who wrote, what's your, Agatha Christie. It's not a mystery like that, right? It's not a mystery where something's secret and you've got to figure it out in that sense anyways. A mystery in the Bible is something that was concealed in the Old Testament. In other words, you knew it was there, but you never knew altogether what God was meaning or pointing to by it. And then a mystery is something that you hardly had any clarity whatsoever in the Old Testament, but when you get to the New Testament, God reveals it, and you go, ah, I never would have known that if all I read was the Old Testament. But now that you have the New Testament, the mystery is revealed to us. That's what the church is. Let me show you that. Ephesians 3 and verse number 3. How that by revelation he made known to me the mystery as I have briefly written already, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages, the Old Testament, was not made known, concealed to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit and His holy apostles and prophets, the writings of the New Testament. And what is that mystery? Ready? Follow me. That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of His promise in Christ through the gospel. Verse 9. And to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages... 
So when did God think about the church and putting it together? From eternity past. It was hinted at in small, unclear ways in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament through the apostles, it has been fully revealed. It says, has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ. That's what he says. What is the, it's not that there would be a people of God. It's not that there would be a church. Here's the mystery, ready? That Gentiles and Jews would be in the church equally. Everybody knew that God said in the Old Testament, all over the Old Testament, from Genesis 12 and the promise of Abraham, that through him all the nations would be blessed. Isaiah, the Gentiles will be brought in. And everybody thought this, yeah, Gentiles will be allowed in someday, but it will always be like this, Jews, Gentiles. That's how it has always been. We're always the top dogs. We're God's people. We're chosen. Everybody else gets grafted in, and it's always going to be like this. And what they never saw until the New Testament was this, that that Jews and Gentiles, not this, this, that they would be, what does it say in verse 6, equal, co-heirs. Really, it means in, literally co-inheritors. Let me show you a verse, and I want you to put them together. Ready? Think with me in your mind. Hold your finger here and turn to 1 Peter 3. It's a verse on marriage too, and you probably know it. 1 Peter, but what I want you to see is it uses the same word that Paul did to describe the church. What are Jews and Gentiles? They are co-heirs, equals. In the church. Peter admonishing husbands and wives in 1 Peter 3 7 says, Husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as the weaker vessel, vessel, and watch, and as being what? Heirs together. One translation, I think King James, joint heirs. It's the exact same word in Ephesians 3, 6, co-inheritors. I would tell you this, that Paul, Peter is writing and telling this. Do you understand that your husband and wife relationship as co, even though whatever you want to believe that that means that the wife is the weaker vessel, and I have my views on that, but whatever you believe that is, no matter what the difference is in your marriage, here's what the truth is about marriage based on the macro story is that husbands and wives are equal. And let me tell you, that meant a boatload in first century Rome. Marriages were anything but equal in their culture. It was a patriarchal society, and the man had everything. Paternostis, it means that the, the man had to, he could decide, and he could have anyone in his family, including his own children and wife, killed if he wanted to, because he owned them. That's how it worked. Thank God that most of them weren't like that and didn't use that. But that's how it was. They didn't know anything about husbands and wives' equality. But Peter says, and Paul says, something that profoundly shook their world as far as relationships go is that in Christ, because why? Because your marriage and my little micro-marriage is to reflect the big marriage So that when people look at your life and mine, they look at that and say, oh, that's what God intended to be because that's what churches are to be. Now, it's even a little bit more if you'll stick with me. He says that that all of the Gentiles would come to know him. Now, that means this, that your marriage, 
Ready? We're halflings, but look how big our responsibility is. There is no other relationship in all of God's creation that he designed. There is no other marriage, a relationship other than marriage that's been giving a high calling to this end. Ready? Your marriage has personal power and influence. You as husband and wife, but it goes beyond that. You have ecclesiastical power because your life is to mirror what the church is to be like. Beyond that, your marriage has global power because it is what all of the nations are to come and worship God together in one people. Your marriage, your little micro-marriage, has the responsibility to mirror, mirror all of that. All of that. See, I hope that elevates your view tonight, that that's how important your marriage, and he says, listen, he says, chapter 3 and verse 9, and this thought about God having your little marriage reflect all of those awesome, great mysteries about God's marriage, he said he thought about this in eternity past from the ages to the ages. John Piper, in thinking of all of this, says this, there is an echo of eternity in every marriage. Can you imagine that? That your little marriage has all about eternity written all over it. That's how valuable it is. Your marriage tonight, whether you realize it or not, is attached to the greatest reality that there ever has been, that you are to be heirs together in the grace of life. What does that mean? Turn back to Ephesians 5 and I'll finish. What does that mean for us? Well, that means that our one flesh is to represent the one flesh of the church. While you're sitting there, just listen to these descriptions. Now that you know two becoming one is what we are as husband and wife, but that's not where the ultimate meaning comes from. Just listen to these verses. Ephesians 2 and verse 14. For he himself is our peace, listen to the language, who has made both one has made both one, two into one, but he's not talking about marriage. He says, and has broken down the middle wall of separation, verse 15, and he uses creation. Remember, weddings and creation. Verse 15, at the end he says, and to create in himself one new person from two. You would think he's talking about marriage. He's not. He's talking about the church. See, Paul, before we ever get to 531, he's going to tell you what the real story is, that your marriage mirrors. It just mirrors it. But the ultimate reality is he brings two out of one, Jew and Gentile, who nobody thought could ever come together and get along, but they do. Listen, how is that accomplished? He says, verse 16, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body. There's the two becoming one. How? Through the cross. Do you know what the answer to your marriage problems is? That you would put your story in his. And that you would let the cross impact how you live that out. That you would let the cross dictate to you how you die to yourself and how you put the other person first. And it doesn't have to be all about you. And it's not about whether you feel good. And it's not about whether your spouse is perfect or not. He says, you need to realize that you know how two people get together and become one and make it work. And he calls it peace. Through the cross. The cross of Jesus. That's the only possible way. So, 
with that in mind, turn back to Genesis one last time. Genesis says that God looked over creation and there was no one fit for Adam to be his helper. No one fit. Now that was verb we saw two times. And in the Hebrew, it literally means this. It means two words. It's a compound word. And their two words are like and opposite. It doesn't make much sense. Here's Eve. She is like him, but opposite of him. Now that is the church, Jews and Gentiles. You look around at our church, even in a small crowd tonight, like this. listen, we are one, but we are two. And in Christ, through the cross, two, all the differences we have, backgrounds, race, ethnicity, language, culture, we are so opposite of one another, but yet we can be one. We can be like each other in that sense. Here's what he says. That's what happens here in the text. See, a woman and a man can be radically... Do you remember the book by John Gray? I want to talk 30 years ago. Remember that men were from Mars and women are from Venus. Do you remember that whole thing? Do you know? I don't know if you know this, but I followed him a little bit. Do you know he came up with a second book? I don't think that long ago. Beyond Mars and Venus. Beyond. He said this. He emphasized this, that we are so different, but we ought to appreciate the differences. You know what God says? Oh, we are different, but we need to focus on what makes us the same. Because if you focus on the differences, they'll make a difference. Not a good one. But here's what he says. You know what? We are like, but we are opposite of one another. And he says, oneness, though, is not sameness. Practical. Ready? If you don't practice that in your marriage, you know what you'll think? I wish my wife was a little bit more like me. Do you ever think that? I wish she, why doesn't she think like me? You'd probably never say that out loud. Why doesn't she think like, why does she do it that way? Why does he, I can't believe, how many times have I told him, why do you do it that way? You know it's not efficient, right? See, but there's our marriage principle from this whole arcing elevated story of the Bible. See, here's the difference. Marriage has been designed that we would be opposite of one another, but like one another, he says. The two become one. But we have to realize that oneness does not mean sameness. We're not the same, but we act and live as one. Number two, leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Being one flesh doesn't mean that you're same. Listen, and one flesh means that all other previous relationships are secondary, and the relationship with your spouse takes precedence over all of them. Practical. So you know what that means? You don't get your emotional needs satisfied by your children. They're not the center of your world. Your spouse is. Your spouse is more important and, is be- and you find your emotional s- security and sense of well-being not from your children, not their achievements, not how they turn out or don't turn out. You get them from your spouse. It's not your parents that you get them from. It's not still trying to please your dad or your mom after all of those years growing up and now you're still doing it as an adult. No, you find your pleasure and your satisfaction and all that God for is, as God is for you in Jesus. Why? Because you leave those things. You leave them and the spouse relationship becomes 
primary. Why? Because that's the truth in the big story, right? When you become a Christian and you become this, it's not your life or other people you get your, where do you get it from? God. God is your spouse. And so he meets all your emotional needs. He meets all your, and see why? Because you've left all other relationships to be his disciple and to follow him. Thirdly, Leave your father and mother, and listen what it says, hold fast. Hold fast to your wife. Literally, you're going to laugh. The word in Hebrew means glue. You know, some of you might say, well, I'm stuck in this marriage. That's not God. That's not what he means. But you are stuck in your marriage for good, for good things. You're stuck in there. And you should appreciate it. You should live like it. And here's what it means. That your relationship is so tight together like this that you can't have anything in between. You won't let anything get between you and your spouse. And interesting in the Hebrew verb, hold fast, means to do it all the time. Keep on doing it. Can I tell you this? To live your micro story out as the macro story, you got to keep working at it. You got to keep pushing it. You got to keep pursuing it. You got to keep pursuing oneness all the time, or the glue perhaps may lose its hold. How do you do that? Let me tell you some practical ways as we end. I would tell you this that we stop saying my and we start and always say our. Let me give you an example financial unity. I've never counseled anyone who as husband and wife had separate bank accounts that it ever ended well. We don't have my money and your money. We don't go on my vacations and your vacations. We are one. And we, we work at it. We pursue it financially. We don't have different priorities. We don't have different accounts. We have one. We are our money. And that's the way all of it should work. Then there's relational unity. We don't sleep in different rooms as husbands and wife. I know there are reasons sometimes that that makes it more comfortable or convenient, but listen, we don't sleep in separate rooms. We don't take separate trips. We do things together. Spiritual unity. I've had couples that I talked to, and one of the first things I found out that was problems is that they go to different churches. Husbands and wives who go to different churches. It can't happen in your marriage, not if you're trying for oneness. That's why the Bible says in that first reader passage that you do these things and honor your wife. Here's why. So that your prayers may not be hindered. Why? Because the Bible assumes this, that you worship together, that you pray together, that your spiritual life is being made one just like all the other heirs your wife, not just sexually and all the other oneness parts of it, but spiritually, that you are one on the inside just as much as you might be one on the outside You ought to be one as a family. You ought to have family unity. As husband and wife, there ought to be one mind about how you're raising your children and what kind of parents you're going to be and the priorities you have and the values you had. I told my D group that when my wife and I, before we got married, we sat down and talked about a load of things about how we view our roles as husband and wife and how we're going to raise our kids and what we're going to do and what will we push them to be the priorities. And we didn't talk about everything, not that we could have thought of it all, But we talked about a lot of things. Why? Because from the very beginning, before we ever said, I do, we believed that being one mattered. One flesh. So we do things financially, relationally, spiritually, our family. See, we want oneness. 
because we take this serious, we take our responsibility serious about what our marriage represents and the scale on which it's been elevated and what God did to bring it to pass. It's that important. I don't know if you've ever heard someone say that husband and wife, the longer they're together, sometimes they start to look like each other. That's scary, isn't it? That would be great for me, awful for my wife. But I can tell you this, that may not be true, I hope. But I hope the longer that you're together, that you may not look alike, but you, but you live alike. That you start saying, hey, we know what matters most. And we want to have our marriage exhibit the oneness, the one flesh concept that God has. Because so much is at stake. God has given us such an awesome responsibility. And every day we get to dramatize it and display it in the way that we treat each other. And if you're in the big story and you know it and you practice it, it will change how you treat your husband or your wife. And it could matter for eternity, really. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I pray tonight that in some, at least some small way, through your spirit and word, that we have elevated our view of marriage. It's not just us and our spouse for all these years, as great as that is. Oh, there's so much more, so much of a bigger picture if we only have eyes to see it. Oh, Father, there's coming the climax someday of the new creation, and all of us will be part of the bride on the greatest wedding day of all when Jesus marries his church all together. And what a feast, a lamb's feast that will be. But Father, until that day occurs, we're in heaven, marriage is no more. And all we are, truthfully, is brothers and sisters in Christ because what goes on forever is not our micro-marriage, but the macro one. Only that one is eternal. So help us now in the present to reflect that reality and do it well by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.